Hello, welcome to episode 313 of the Apple Podcast. I am your host, Simon Head. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by AIXDSP.com. Get affordable and useful plugins for your digital audio workstation. That's Pro Tools, that's Reaper, that's Cubase, whatever people, whatever the kids are using. Get the ICU Intuition Compressor. It's a compressor that gives you a clear and intuitive visual display that shows exactly what is happening to your audio at all times. Click the link in the description for more information. Follow my work on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash You can pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with hosting and gas fees, and you can cancel at any time. Go to applelog.ca slash shop. Go to buy a t-shirt from there. Uh, iTunes, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, please. Give it five stars. Like and share on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash pod. Follow me on Twitter at simonhead666. Also Instagram at simonhead666. Today on the show, I have Mr. Dave Gen. Dave Gen, oh gosh, is a staple in the independent rock and roll scene in Vancouver. Right now, he's actually one of the, he's, he's a guitar player in 5440. So Canadian history in the making right here on this show. I'm talking, to, yeah, so Dave, Dave Gen and I also go back. Um, he also used to play in the Matt Good band. And when it was good, when it was good, not when it was rapey. So anyways, ladies and gentlemen... Mr. Dave Gen uh, from 5440 on the Apple Lot Podcast. running my this poor laptop at double double thing now i'm doing both recording and video chatting what the hell is going on it's incredible here you are i i see you how i mean god wow every every time it seems like every maybe every five times the world falls apart with this thing and it's only been six years of podcasting dave six years yeah Wow, you're an early adopter. Well, yeah, I was like four or five years into like, you know, listening to like, you know, What the Fuck podcast and Joe Rogan stuff like, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Early-ish. I'm second wave. I would be Black Flag if I was the, uh, yeah. Not a bad place to be. <laughs> Not a bad place to be. So, my God. Um, first of all, thanks for doing the show. Happy to do it. I appreciate you doing it. I know it's funny when I talk to people like, why do you want to do this? And I'm like, because you're an exciting guy. You have, you've, you've done a lot of cool things and you are a cool person. So you should have your coolness uh, highlighted on video. Well, on audio, actually, because it's an audio podcast. Yeah. If there was video, then people wouldn't think I was as cool. You're cool. I like your hair. You got, you, you had your hair all tied back before. Now you got it kind of flowing. Yeah. It was out of, it was completely out of control. When I saw you last, I've had a trim since then. Yeah, yeah. So I've started. I've started trying just a little bit. Just a little bit. So yeah. what's what's new? Uh, what's new in your world these days? Uh, Fifty four forty played in Edmonton this week. We were lucky enough to uh, have to go in the day before because we we're the surprise musical guests and we couldn't be on site day of show. 
so we had to fly in day before and it just so happened it, it the day before was the canada mexico soccer game in edmonton so we went to the game and stood there in the minus 10 temperatures and watched canada beat mexico which was quite exciting that's cool that's yeah I, I, those edmontonians are a lot more hardy than i am though i think i saw football in edmonton football game in edmonton cfl game and yeah. same thing it was snowing yeah, it was uh, it was too cold for soccer, but Canada won, so I felt warm. If if it was Mexico winning from the last minute of the first half through the second, I think I probably would have been even colder. <laughs> where was the where was the where's the game? Pardon my ignorance of not knowing anything. Yeah, it, was about the, it was at the hockey. It was at the football stadium there. The uh, wherever the es- the elk play, <laughs> the Eskies, the, the Elkimos, elk Eskimos. Yes, the Elkimos. I think I've done a show in there. I did an Edge Fest in there, I think, with Trouble Charger in the early 2000s. Yeah, I did a couple of Edge Fests at that place. It was the one that Dave Grohl... Oh, actually, that was a somersault. Dave Grohl stole a golf cart and got arrested. Really? Yeah, got arrested. Him and Tyler got arrested. Yeah, I was on that Edge Fest with Green Day and and Foo Fighters. Um, I watched both bands every night. The thing that I remember the most about that tour was that um, the first night I watched both bands at Molson Park in Barrie, 40,000 people there. And I watched Foo Fighters, who I was a bigger fan of at the time. It was like Color in the Shape era. Oh, yeah. And I watched Foo Fighters. I was like, fuck, what a great band. And then Green Day, who I thought were kind of okay, they came on and they were amazing live. Like, holy shit, what a good live band. And, you know, all the shtick and the hilarity and the gimmicks. And uh, then, you know, they 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 finished their set and they trashed the stage and they set their drums on fire with lighter fluid. They walk off stage and then Billy Joe comes back on with an acoustic guitar and sings Time of Your Life, Good Riddance, standing in front of the burning drums. Oh, and it's amazing. Like, oh, my God, that's so fucking powerful. That's so great. Yeah. And so I watched them every single night of the tour. And then what I recognized was that every night Foo Fighters played a different set, different songs, different order, different banter. And Green Day just did exactly the same Vegas show every single night. Just insert name of town here. Right. Yeah. And but somehow Green Day were like tighter and more spectacular. It was like a better show. It was quite a lesson for me. Mm-hmm. And then on the last night in Vancouver of Edgefest. Foo Fighters burned their drum set <laughs> and Green Day had to follow them. Would and they... the question, of course, was, I wonder if Green Day will burn their drum set after Foo Fighters would green... burn theirs. And of course, Green Day could not go off script. They had to burn their drum set too. <laughs> I saw them on the Warp Well, Actually, I toured a lot in the early 2000s, did the Warp Tour, and Green Day were headlining that during, where I think they just put warning out at that time. And yeah. they were still burning the drum kit. Like it was hilarious. Like their oh, truck had full of, full of drums and the drum tech would like every day. And they, they got so pissed off like production that they put 57s for overheads. Cause they're like, yeah. we've wrecked too many overheads. This is 57s. Yeah. And then Mike would p- push over his bass amp too. Right. Did he do that? Cause he would yeah. push the fucking double stack of SVTs over. Yeah, it was, and they would always play. They're supposed to play for what at the warp tour is forty five minutes. They'd be yeah. hitting an hour, looking at Lyman, going, "Yeah, ha ha ha, still playing." Yeah, yeah they got a lot of. <laughs> well, that eventually caught up on Billy, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. You... 
What do you do? We got some anger management or something, or was it some booze and alcohol treatment? Whatever he did, I think it worked. Yeah, for, it's yeah. all in the same. Uh, it's all in the same universe. Did you ever see Green Day sort of like in the club days? I did not. I missed them in those those clubs. But I know that they played. Uh, they played the Cruel Elephant on Granville Street early on, like small little shitty punk rock bar with no stage. Yeah, uh, they came. They came through several times. Of course, I mean all those West Coast bands would come through Vancouver on their tours when you could cross the border freely. Um, so no, I did not see them in their sm- in their in their in their smaller days. Mm-hmm. But I did see a lot of those um, early ninety bands in small clubs on the way up. Whether, yeah, and and played with a lot of them too. Yeah, it's it's an interesting. You know, it's fun when you see when sort of like punk rock kind of breaks and people start selling records and you kind of see the people and you sort of see them years later and you go, yeah, you know, like they're kind of the same people as far as I'm concerned. They never really change. I think when it was like hair metal days, if you were like Vince Neil, like starving Vince Neil is a different than rich Vince Neil, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or starting Phil Anselmo is different than in ending Phil Anselmo. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just one of those moments where you're like, decadence kind of gets to you and you start realizing like, Hey, I want to, I want to do these. Well, I mean, honestly, lighting your drum kit on fire every night. That's pretty decadent, I guess. Pretty decadent. Oh yeah. Such a good stick though. When I saw it, I was like, that's so good. That's so good. <laughs> they got in a lot of trouble, like every time they did it and then it just started getting like notorious. So they would ultimately be paying fines. Cause you know, you can't, you can't do that. Like you're not supposed, you know, you could light the whole have an open fire on stage. No, you know, you can't do that only for ceremonial purposes. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, it was an incredible way to frame an incredible song. Yeah. 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 So, um, so tell me when, when did you kind of, when was your first foray into like music and punk rock? When did you first get into it? Well, I didn't really come up in punk rock. I'm, you know, I'm a classically trained jazz trained pianist first as a kid. And, you know, in the eighties, I discovered new wave. Like my, my favorite bands in high school were like pre rattle and hum U2, echo and the Bunnymen, new order, um, the cure, the Smiths. I also loved local bands like 5440. <laughs> And uh, the Grapes of Wrath, like those were my local heroes. Um, You know, I was aware of DOA and the subhumans, but uh, there was something quite dangerous about it. When uh, I graduated from high school and moved out of White Rock and into Vancouver, started playing in the local scene. That's when I was really introduced to the Vancouver punk rock scene and seeing, uh, seeing DOA early on when I was 19. And then the band that I really fell in love with was, was no means no, yeah. because they had, you know, they were thinking man's punk rock, uh, intricate playing um, me being from more of an educated musical background, that band really, really appealed to me. And I remember thinking very clearly when I was 19, 20 years old, how fortunate we were to live in Vancouver and that the best live band on earth actually was just across just a ferry ride away from us over in Victoria. And we, we could go see them play uh, every four months or so yeah. in a small bar. Uh, and it was all incredibly inspiring. 
the other bands when I was coming up when I was 1920 that were really inspiring to me were um uh Sons of Freedom. I just loved. I thought they were just so far ahead of the time and I learned so much about the power of ensemble playing and how it was important to play if you could really pulse as a unit is more powerful than technique. Yeah. Um you know, the band that I was playing with when I was 19, 20 years old was a band called 24 Gone. And they were, we were kind of a sort of, kind of a new, we were sort of a cross between the Cure and the Cult, sort of a rockier Cure, quite British sounding though. But the guys in the band were all very influenced by West Coast punk rock. So I was, I got a fast education seeing a lot of those bands and also um, learning the songs. Cause you know, after the bar, we'd have to head back to the jam space and, try and execute punk rock the best we could <laughs> well yeah you guys had no means no we didn't have anything like that really yet like that technical like thinking like yeah absolutely like wrong is one of the greatest rock album like albums like it's got to be up there with like oh my god yeah i when i heard that record you know when you listen to something the first time in your fucking world just goes oh my god like how yeah. how can you guys do this you know and, you know, when and it, was, it was always, I mean, for me, No Means No was always a live experience. Like, obviously, we wore the, we wore the digital grooves out of the wrong CD, but uh, seeing them live was really uh, next level, the yeah. energy. One of and the-, the, band, the band with Andy <sighs> was absolutely untouchable. There was just, you know, I'd see all these bands come through town. Famous bands from all over the world, punk rock bands, and I still thought No Means No kicked all their asses. Yeah. Yeah, they did a tour. Um, when I was in Red Fisher in Winnipeg, we played with them in Winnipeg at the Western Cultural Center, and they came across one way as No Means No, but they had two drummers because they came back as the Hanson brothers. And yeah. they did a show with two drummers, and some of the stuff they were doing was like, if you didn't really know what was going on, you'd think it's like this, the double kick syncopation between two drummers, like, and I'm watching this and I'm seeing the kick drums move. And I'm like, these guys, fuck, please. <laughs> it's like one of the greatest, I will never forget that show. Cause they came out as a two piece, did early stuff as two piece. And then they just sort of kept building the band and then having two drums at the end was amazing. And then their set list was 35 minutes of Hanson brothers songs. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. fuck all this Brothers. math rock. Let's play some fucking rock and roll. It was like, yeah, yeah. very, very, very Ramones. Yeah. Um, and very, and very fun. Yeah. But yeah, No Means No was, the, No Means No was a really big one for me. And then of course I got my first hand uh, education in punk, punk rock right from The Godfather when I started playing with Art Bergman in 1991. Um, I was 22 and he was 37. Yeah. When I started playing with them. That's like a world and, away. That's a, like a lifetime away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can remember after my first show with him, looking across the, sitting in the dressing room, looking across the dressing room at him and going, oh my God, I can't believe I'm playing music with somebody who's 37 <laughs> years old. <laughs> yeah. This is unbelievable. <laughs> Um, but art, uh, art was a real education in, uh, patience, 
in in a lot of things in brilliance yeah in in improvisation i tell you in the six years i play with art i never heard him play the same solo twice so much of what playing in a band is is learning a part writing a part learning it and then executing it as well as you can every single night and he just every single note he played every single chord he played every note he sang every word he sang was a risk it was all about taking musical risks and in true punk rock form, he, he, you know, he was incredibly mediocre a lot of the time. And sometimes he was, sometimes he was fucking horrible. Mm -hmm. And then every once in a while you play a show and you go, Oh my God, like that was transcendental and we'll never touch that. Like it was magic. Mm -hmm. The other person I saw who was like that is the, 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 we were talking about that edge fest with, with Foo Fighters and, and, and Green Day. The one after that was with Hole and Silverchair. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. That was Somersault. Yeah. Was that Somersault? Was that Edgefest? That was Edgefest. It, it was another Edgefest. Oh, yeah, because you were out with that guy. That guy, the good yeah, guy. Yeah, I was out with that guy. And um, Courtney, the first night, in, I hadn't seen Hole. And the first night, in, again, in Molson Park Barry, I was like, oh, my God, this is fucking horrible. Yeah. She's horrible, and the band's horrible. And this is just really, really horrible. And then I didn't watch her for a couple of nights. And then I saw her again, I think in Winnipeg or Regina or something. And it was fucking incredible. Yeah. I saw like, them. Yeah. Unbelievable. She was a God. I couldn't believe how good she was. Yeah. I couldn't take my eyes off her. That Just a, a punk rock God. And that's really like, that's what punk rock is to me. It's like taking the type of risks and putting yourself out there in a way that you could be the worst band or the best band on the planet on any given night between yeah. a Wednesday and a Thursday. Yeah. Because you're taking those kinds of risks. And um, it's, I, fa I, found, I found that type of education with art very interesting, like learning what it was to really, truly be rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Funny that you'd say about Edgefest is because Hole had Melissa Oftimore playing bass at that time. Yeah. And they did a Doughboys cover. They did Shine. And yeah. our tour manager was Paul... Um, um, Williams. Well, Yeah, from Doughboys. Yeah. He, so I, he came out of the bus and they're playing Shine and, and he, you could just see him, his head's kind of like whirling. I'm like, what do you think of that? And he goes, I don't know. I don't know what to think of that. <laughs> But yeah, I saw some atrocious shows of Hole, and you're right. That drummer though in that band was so good. Um, Samantha. Yeah, because the closing, the 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 after party was somewhere in East Van, and New Wave Aoki played. And uh, did you go to that, yeah. or did you just stay home? <laughs> I was in New Wave Aoki. You were oh, see, I played Whip It by Devo with you guys then, because I did. Yeah. yeah, I didn't play. Th I I didn't play that show, but I'm a I'm a founding member of of. New Wave Yoki. I did it for a couple of years. That's a brilliant idea. I mean, nobody's really done that, as far as I know, at this end of the country, that's for sure. Yeah, it was actually, it was an idea of Lisa Bomar and Jason Grants here in Vancouver. They had seen a punk Rocky Oki down in San Francisco or LA, and they said, yeah, we're doing that. They started with a punky Oki, and then they moved into New Wave Yoki, and uh and yeah, that was, it, I have a hilarious story about that band. We, we had, um, you know, it started out kind of a fuck band and uh, it, we would play these shows and it would all be Vancouver musicians who would come up and sing. There'd never really be any amateurs. It'd always be guys in bands. Mm 
And, uh, you know, anybody from Todd Kearns or, or Luke Desette would get up on any given night and, and, and sing a song. And then Jason had this idea. He's like, I want to take this to the Coca conference, you know, where all the college yeah. bookers, they have that conference. And I played the Coca conference before with a couple of artists. I think maybe I played it with art and maybe with Matt as well. And uh, it was always so harsh and lame because they're all just, you know, yeah. they just want you to get off stage so they can get to drinking and fucking or whatever they were doing. And uh, it was just the lamest showcase, no feedback, no energy. And uh, New Wave Yoki was last of the night and the college bookers are all sitting there with their arms crossed watching one indie band after another, after, after another, giving them nothing back. And New Wave Yoki came on and within half a song, they're all up and stage diving. We we're supposed to play 25 minutes and we played an hour and a half. They wouldn't let us leave. And after the show, we're like, we're going to be fucking rich. We are going to be so rich. Like all we got to do is play these stupid new wave covers and let these people who can't sing, sing them. Um, funnily enough, it, that band kind of, it fell apart. The, the guys who, who ran it, Jason and Lisa, um, got busy with other things. Jason is very high up in Live Nation now. That's what he got busy with. Yeah, um, yeah. They shared a space. Were you in the band when they shared a space with us and a few? I think there was another. There was three bands in one sort of area, and New Wave Yoki was one of them. And we it, were down in the meat lockers off Homer Street. I was in that rehearsal space for years. Okay. It was a whole, whole set of meat lockers. I think this was sort of like, I know where that is, because I think I did some demos for us and a few in that area. But yeah. this was sort of further, I think it even seemed, felt like it was close to the Mushroom Trail studio, like around there. Um, just my memory of it. But it was in a sort of a thir- second story of a of an office building ish type of thing. Oh and yeah, I don't know. Big open room, and Ogilvy, Dave Ogilvy had a stu- his little just had a control room in there, just just in a, one of the offices. Right. Yeah. And no, um, I remember that space. Sean Stubbs was drumming for New Wave Yoki and SNFU at the same time. I think that's why they were in the same rehearsal space. One yeah. set of drums. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember them having like a couple of different kits, and then whoever rehearsed, they just changed the PA system around. But yeah, um, yeah. and Rob Johnson would do all the songs. Like he was the guy that would rehearse because he's like he's fully up to that. So he, he's like, I'm I'm rehearsing. I'm like, what do you mean rehearsing? Yeah, I'm, he's just singing all the songs for New Wave Yoki. I'm like, I don't, you know, I thought it was hilarious because he's like, yeah, what a great note with a Ponzi English accent. I would hope. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Actually, there is a thing that happens happened in Toronto a couple of years ago with uh, with Cleve uh, from Explore Rodeo. He did a thing called Sid's Kids. And it was him and John Sutton and a guy named Marcel. And they did like, people would get up and sing. And it would be the same idea, same idea. But but we'd have to learn. We'd have to practice with them and then go do the show. Like it was like a yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New Wave Night. And then it was Punk Rock Night. Mostly Punk Rock stuff. But um, yeah, but that, that was, you know. So did you end up getting any gigs out of that Coca thing? What happened after that was it, it kind of that it kind of fell apart a little bit after that. Jason got very busy with Live Nation, and once he wasn't administrating it and and lighting fires under it, um, that like the the remnants of that band, the Tainted Lovers, was the name of the band that that did the new Abiyoki thing. Um, they're still a cover band around Vancouver, like they're like corporate cover band, dance band. Mm-hmm. I don't think they do the new Aviyoki thing anymore. Maybe occasionally, every once in a while. Um, but it was pretty fun. <laughs> I certainly put a lot of uh, hairspray in my hair. <laughs> I was just talking to Brendan Canning today from Broken Social Scene, and he was telling me he does once a year. He does covers in his with his buddies. They do a cover band, 
I mean, it seems to be like as you get older, that type of thing comes becomes less taboo, I guess, right? Well, yeah. I mean, we all we all came from an era where you either played covers or original music. And if you crossed over, you were looked at very skeptically, particularly from from covers to originals. Uh, I don't think that's the case anymore. And it certainly wasn't the case before that punk rock ethic, Yeah, that DIY ethic. Um, but yeah, in 1991, like you didn't get caught playing covers, right? You did not get caught doing that. Unless you, you did were, it ironically. Unless you were doing it. Yeah, yeah, unless you did it ironically. Or you're the Screaming Trees and you're playing She Said or something. <laughs> um, but, but it's... Uh, but I think that, that that stigma doesn't exist anymore. The idea, you know, kids these days, this generation, they, the, the idea of selling out is a completely different concept to them. Yeah. It, mean, it means you got some followers and you're making some bank. Yeah. It's funny you say that because, I mean, we're, we obviously, I, I, nobody knows this yet, but I mean, you'd obviously part of this documentary I'm working on, and that was a big part of our conversation was talking about yeah. like um, what it was then and what it is now. And, you know, honestly, it's like it's there's like an old guy in the front yard yard effect, like get off my grass kind of a thing to it. But I've learned to understand, like, if you're happy with doing what you're doing, like, because we've you know, we've all suffered to, to, to play music in bands. Yeah. You know, we've all done it. So what's wrong with getting a little bit of, you know, a little bit of, just maybe just a thrill out of it rather than obviously not money is really not that important. But what about, you know, getting something out of it? Is something more important now than I think than funds. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but yeah. Well, I mean, I know that fifty four forty in the in the eighties and nineties, you know, they refused to take cigarette money or refused to get beer money. You know, they're they didn't want any beer sponsorship. Um, in hindsight, you know, I look back, particularly when I was playing with MGB. You know, if you remember, there was the Belvedere bus, right? Belvedere yeah. cigarettes bought a tour bus. And they said, you can have this bus and travel on it if you're going to do, you know, go tour Quebec in the Maritimes. Well, a band like MGB couldn't go tour Quebec in the Maritimes and have it pay for itself. We would lose money to do it. But you take some cigarette money, you can actually go reach these, um, you know, there's still the, all these towns in Quebec, um, you know, Rimouski and, and, uh, and, these little towns in Quebec I've never gotten to since, and I never probably will never will get to without the sort of corporate support of cigarette or, or, you know, waste of, of those vice companies of, uh, of, of advertising when they're not allowed to advertise. I don't want to say it, you know, the, the punk rock ethic of not selling out seems silly now, but what we recognize as, as musicians, lifelong musicians is you need all the fucking help you can get right just to keep your head above water even when you're successful yeah there's a lot of people taking a cut before the last few pennies trickle into your pocket so if you can get a free bus or you can get a little bit of support just for putting a a beer sign up i think you got to do it well yeah i truly i mean we did i think that edge fest we did was in a Molson Canadian um, tour bus that Bamford had paid, like you got paid for to put this big wrap on it. Right. Right. I'd tell you, it was very, very interesting driving into like parts of 
you know, Winnipeg or East Van where people see this big Molson Canadian beer bottle driving down the road. Um, it is, it is, you know, for me, it was like, I was like, oh, that's great. I don't, I don't need to drive, you know, because I would have been the guy driving 50% away across the country. And as you know, tours are crazy because you're out the door. If you're off, you know, you hang out and you leave about one in the morning and then you sort of at the next venue. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it's pretty harsh if you don't have a bus or at least something yeah. or a driver. Oh, no. No, I know. I mean, the, the first Edge Fest MGB did, that one with Foo Fighters and Green Day, we were in the, we were in a van. We are the van, a van amongst buses. Yeah. And it was, it was hard. Yeah. Canadian musicians, um, you know, we, we are very, very hardy folk. We drive 12 hours to play a shithole in a small town. And uh, I think that I can't imagine, you know, you've done some touring in the States and it's, you get down there and you're, you're, you're driving from, city of 10 million to another city of 10 million in in two hours um you really realize that uh just how spread out we are and how much space there is in between uh what we would call a major center which is just a a blip on the on the map in california yeah yeah i remember winnipeg had four hundred thousand people in it that's when i moved there four hundred thousand people thing yeah yeah i um definitely traveling you're right you know but and the, also the fact is is like i think you burn out faster if you're not there is that sort of like between the edge of like suffering and then getting decadence you know in the middle there is somewhere where you can just carry on and keep keep a life you know and keep keep an understanding not get too jaded or sort of you know because that's the tricky thing do you ever catch yourself like oh fuck i'm jaded right now or is this ever did that ever happen to you Oh, I think I'm less jaded now than I was 20 years ago. Interesting. Yeah. I think that I think that I I I've in my 50s now playing in an established band with really good guys, I feel fortunate. I feel like a lot of days I think I feel like the luckiest musician in Canada. I was in the right place at the right time a couple of times and was afforded opportunities that most people don't get. And not because I'm the greatest guitarist, the greatest keyboard player, or the greatest producer, or greatest backing vocalist, or anything. Just because I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and um, wasn't a total fuck up. Mm -hmm. And so I feel, I feel that like positive energy and appreciating um, what I've got is what's allowed me to keep working and be bearable to be around <laughs> just at this point in time what's really important um about being in a band right it's like you're good in the van yeah i was going to say the same thing i i worked for ashley mcisaac and he is a he is a nightmare like living nightmare and the band were all like the nicest guys you've ever met because they mm -hmm. can handle but they did have rules they're like we're not traveling in a van with that guy so they would have their own you know mode of transportation Right. My job would have to drive Ashley around and then he would just be yelling at me and smoking cigarettes from the back of his minivan. But, right. but there's this moment of like the band, you have to have this sort of like absorbing, um, patient, uh, way about you, especially if you're sort of a sideman in this yeah. business, because that's what gets you hired. Oh yeah. That's the whole, yeah. Yeah. That's a whole different thing is the rent a guy thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, where you don't, where, where you, where you don't even get a boat. Um, and yes, that takes a certain type of personality to be able to do it. Um, it's an incredible thing to make your living playing music. It's also virtually impossible. Yeah. Um, and in order, those of those who, who figure out how to do it, they've figured out how to do it probably more by personality than technique. You know, it's, it's, you know, when I got, when I landed the 5440 gig, um, I didn't land it cause I was the best player in town. You know, I landed it cause I had a reputation for being good in the van. I had a reputation for being a pro and being a reasonable human being in a world where there's quite a few unreasonable human beings. Yeah, it's true. That's true. I, I work for um, a country band, the Wilkinsons, and yep. uh, they used to have people in the band that would like say, Where, who do I deliver, give my headshots to like for press? And like, it's not about you, buddy. You're the drummer. <laughs> you know, and that's like real moments like that, you know? And it, it is a type of, um, it's a type of humbleness, I think, in Canadian music where you have to sort of understand that, I don't know, you know, to me, it's like, because I kind of came out the other end of it. I'm doing good. I have a good job. I have a good family and stuff like that. If it would have been different, I don't know if I'd be so loving and lovey-dovey of the music scene because it was pretty harsh at times. It really did suck sometimes. Yeah. It takes a certain amount of intestinal fortitude just to be able to get up and do it. It can be very, very depressing. And um, it can be very disheartening. But, you know, I, <coughs> if you're familiar with that movie, Dig. Mm -mm. So Dig is a documentary about the Brian Jonestown massacre and the Dandy Warhols okay. on their way up highly recommend it's the best uh it's the best documentary i've found you know when you watch music documentaries they're either about like the eagles yeah but it's like to be the biggest band in the world or it's about anvil you know <laughs> yeah right but dig is about what it's like in the middle mm -hmm. the massive middle which basically you know we reside in yeah where you're like doing it and kind of people kind of know what you are, but you're really not making any money and it's still really hard and exhausting and disillusionment abounds. <laughs> and the interviewer asked Courtney Taylor, Taylor, the singer of, um, excuse me, the singer of Dandy Warhols, like, how have you maintained being in a band this many years? You know, how have you kept it together? And he said, in this band, we have a philosophy. And the philosophy is, uh, if it's good, it's fun. And if it's bad, it's funny. <laughs> and there's no other options. That's... And 5440, we take that same attitude. Mm -hmm. It's fun or funny and nothing else. Right? Yeah. The shitty gig, the van breaks down. If you know, you get Rick Poff on the back end or you don't, the hotel or the flights get canceled or whatever it is, whatever shitty ha thing happens, which is going to happen. It's funny. Mm -hmm. And if things go well and the gig's good and the band's playing well, and there's a full house, it's fun. And those are our options. And we have to remind ourselves sometimes those are your only options, fun or funny. <laughs> 
I've never, yeah, I've never, can, now you explain him like, yeah, that, that, I wish I knew that a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very good survival technique. Yeah. There's, Not to give yourself an option besides those two. You should check out, there's one on YouTube, it's called Why Am I Doing This? It's basically guys in like punk rock bands talking about being in a van. And yeah. it, it is, it's a little long, it's a little trimming, but it is amazingly well put because there's guys talking about like, I got to quit my job to go on tour. I mean, that rings so true with people mm -hmm. I've played in bands with. Like, like, luckily, I've had a recording studio that sort of kept my, kept me close, you know what I mean? But I played in a band with a guy who had like literally had to quit his job at the bank and then yeah. quit his other job at the bank after, you know, getting another job and going on tour for a month, mm -hmm. kept quitting his jobs. There's a time. There's a time and a place, you know. Like, luckily, I kind of kept myself in sort of the business of sorts to be able to still be accessible. But it's a tricky one. Like, once you start thinking about, like, maybe if I drove a cab or maybe if I did this or maybe if I um, went and got some training on how to be a business guy or something. Like, yeah, there's that sort of feeling of, like, losing somebody to the to that part of it. But that's so petty and weird because now I'm thinking, no, people should be happy in life. Music shouldn't be suffer. It should be fun, and it should be a thing that people can enjoy with you, not just you know getting something selfishly out of it. Which is a lot of people sort of when you're 20, that's your thing. You're like I'm gonna be fucking Led Zeppelin, you know, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you what do you think about that? Well, it's a lot easier to be in the van when you're 20 years old. Yeah. Than when you're 40. So that's true. And you know, a lot of my peers in our in our early 30s, they sort of you know got real jobs or went in the film industry or started scoring or, or, or whatever, whatever they did, like to, they went, you know what? Okay. That was, that was a good run of 10 years trying, but you know, whatever, I didn't catch a break or whatever. What is interesting is that, you know, a lot of my friends and peers and ex bandmates that fell out of it in the early thirties, in their early thirties. Now, you know, my phone rings and it's like, Hey, you know, um, my wife's telling me I got to need a hobby and I need to get out of the house and I hate golf and I ain't going to gamble and I never want to see the inside of another bar. So I was wondering, you know, can we get a case of beer and maybe just like set up some gear and jam on uh -huh. Saturday night? They recognize that, you know, the, as far as a leisure activity goes, you know, what they were trying to do, what we were trying to do professionally in our twenties actually was a lot more fun than we gave it credit for at the time. Right. Yeah. When we were, quote careering unquote um so i'm seeing a lot of my 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 friends uh come back to it um and to your point like less concerned with oh well i can't play a cover people will think i'm cool uncool or whatever it's like yeah no we can jam crazy train it's okay to jam crazy train <laughs> doesn't suck as much as you said it sucked yeah. um yeah yeah so, I mean, I, the thing I wonder about is like the thing that I'm in love with and have always been in love with and continue to be in love with is the band dynamic and the band culture and ensemble playing and the power of four guys or girls playing in with a pulse and a unison and becoming um, more than the sum of the parts and being something so powerful. And I mean, where are the bands? Yeah. You know, the la the la the last two interesting bands that I can name that have come out in the last twenty years have both have two members in them. <laughs> it's true. You know, it's like 
actually the last three bands I can think of that are interesting all have two members in them. Really? Like, are we are we ever going to see a four piece again? Like, hmm. well, I mean, Death, any- Death Cab for Cutie were a good kind of a good band. They're they're they yeah. they're still a good band. I mean, yeah. they have a good dynamic. I just discovered a band called Orca, um, Manchester Orchestra, and they mm-hmm. put they they were like around ten years ago, and I missed them, and I just caught up with them. They put a record called um oh I want I don't want to screw the name up, but they're on they're on wherever all the streaming things. But it is like indie music, but played very, very well. But and just thought provoking lyrics, and mm-hmm. and it's it's very int- it's interesting to sort of key into it now, because it is for now. Like I think I don't know. There's this we can segue into this whole thing about streaming, but I think there's just it's easily to it's easier to find stuff like that now than it was when I was like fishing through al- record stores, you know, and finding mm-hmm. that perfect record. You know, and the positive thing about having a record store is the guy would say, you don't want to buy that, that's shit. There's only two mm-hmm. good songs on it. And that was sort of like a good bounce-off point. Someone would tell you, like, hey, just buy that record, don't buy this record. But now we're all out there. It's in the wild. We have to go find it. Like, you know. Yeah. And how, yeah. how how do you go find new music? Oh, well, new music? <clears throat> My education in in music now comes from youth. Mm-hmm either my kids or if i uh i've been to i've been doing some education over the last five years i'm i'm taking a a sabbatical right now but i've been doing some teaching um post-secondary teaching of music at uh, garth richardson's production school nimbus i basically developed like an artist development course with an emphasis on songwriting and so a lot of my education comes from 20 year olds, 19 year olds, the people with their ear to the ground. Cause mm-hmm. I don't have my ear to the ground anymore. Mm-hmm. I got three kids. I got, I got field hockey to drive them to and ballet lessons to pay for. Um, so a lot of, and of course, a lot of, a lot of what they listen to is, is hip hop, uh, trap, um, and electronic music. Um, and you know, they are constantly playing me artists that I've never heard of who they absolutely worship and I go on the streaming service and they've got, you know, 500 million streams <laughs> and I've never heard of them. And it's very, very good. Yeah. Um, you know, the amazing thing about technology is it's completely democratized money, uh, music making and anybody can make a, a professional sounding record in their bedroom with a laptop within reason. I mean, you know, you're not going to make an incredibly well-produced rock band in, in, sounding record in, in your bedroom, but you certainly can make incredible sounding electronic music. Um, I'm all for that. You know, this era that we live in when, you know, a song like Old Town Road that is a free beat from YouTube made by a guy in Amsterdam and sung over by a guy in a closet in Atlanta with no manager and no label and no agent and no publisher can eat the world. That's my kind of musical democracy. Yeah. Um, we can have a conversation all day long about whether old town road is of quality or not, but when it comes down to it, that's just a fucking opinion, your opinion or mine. Yeah. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, is it resonated with enough tens or hundreds of millions of people to make it eat the fucking world when it's gestation is so 
It's just not controlled by old white men who mm -hmm. aren't making music. They're making money. And it yeah. doesn't matter whether they're selling shoe, shoes or grapple grommets or songs. They're about profit mm -hmm. and gatekeeping. And that is a wonderful time to live in. I am all for that. You touched on streaming earlier. Like, I love streaming. Yes, of course, one of my revenue streams, a couple of my revenue streams have completely dried up because of streaming. And the deals that the streaming companies made with the record companies that 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 cut out the 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 creators, the producers, the songwriters, the artists. But if you had told me 20 years ago, Dave, I've just invented this thing. It goes on your phone. And for the low, low price of $100 a month, you can listen to any song ever recorded. You know what I'd say? Where do I sign up? Yeah. This is the most incredible thing for a music, music maker ever invented. Access to any song instantaneously. Mm -hmm. What do I have to pay? I'll pay it. The fact that I that revenue stream has dried up for me, but I only have to pay $10 a month for Spotify for access to any song ever written instantaneously. Amazing. Yeah. I'll take it. I'll take that trade all day, every day. Yeah. And the, algor the algorithm isn't completely screwed up, too, because, you know, I do wish they could switch off the function once I've listened to the record, but it just goes quiet. Just can I have that option to just not listen yeah. to anything? after it because it does right. become very confusing because you're like and i do and there's a double-edged sword because part of me is like oh i've never heard this before i like this and you press the little heart and then you're like oh okay and then it right. takes you down a, a little road of like i would never have found this manchester orchestra i would have mm -hmm. never found his um his majesty's voice and other artists like never would have found this stuff if it wasn't mm -hmm. for like letting it play <laughs> you know what i mean right you know right you know, well, I don't, I don't necessarily use the algorithms to discover new music, but I certainly recognize as a music producer, you know, so much of what we do is reference, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. So we're referencing the greats, right? And yeah. to have access to the greats. Yeah. 20 years ago, it was like, you know what we need here? We need that, we need that like sound of like, you know, that car's keyboard sound that yeah. we do, we do, yeah. we do, you know that sound? What, how is that sound? Hey, can we send the runner down to A and B sound to pick up the car's greatest hits and bring it back here so we can reference that sound? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the fact that we have instant access to any song ever recorded. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. $10? What a deal. Yeah, I had a debate with a guy about vinyl. He goes, listen, vinyl is good. It's great. It sounds good. It's, it's clean. It's a, I said, yeah, it's really tough to take vinyl into the forest and walk through the woods and listen to my favorite album with a record player. It's just, just it's a whole different experience about how you can enjoy and consume music. Um, the fact is that you're right. There is a trouble that is that everything's there. You know, it would be nice if there was some sort of way of, they're trying, like those algorithms are trying to, um give you like playlists to sort of hey maybe like this but yeah. i still think there should be some sort of human element to that and sort of back to the point with your kids that love music and my my kids and in, they introduced me to mother mother which is like this band's amazing it's like and stuff that i would listen to if i was in their age but there's a type of like um uh tribalism right as a kid like oh i love this you love it too don't you like boom and then they end up loving it because there's an influence of like someone is influencing them 
mm-hmm. think as you get older, you miss out on that type of influence, you know, like when you're 20 and you're playing in a band like with Art Bergman, there's sort of like that sort of like you're influenced by what he's telling you. Like I toured with yeah. SNFU for five years. They influenced me. Uh, my musical, whatever, compass changed based on being influenced. And, you know, the trouble is now that we all have these things in our ears is that maybe the influence isn't as, um, I don't know, it, it, does it still come in like that same form or is it like, uh, hey, just just throw a bunch of shit at you and you might like some of it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't speak too much. I mean, I think I've got a little bit of a handle on the 20-year-olds of, of today, but in, in actual fact that the, the, the 20-year-olds that come through Nimbus are, um, you know, they're, they're music producers, they're music lovers, they're music makers, right? So mm-hmm. they're, they're the freaks that we were 30 years ago. Yeah. We're, they're the outliers that we were 30 years ago. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I wonder if there is the... the uh, genre specific tribalism that certainly existed in, amongst my peers in the, in, in the eighties, right? Like the smoke pit was segregated, <laughs> you know, <laughs> depending on whether you loved Motley Crue or the cure. Yeah. You know, it's like you weren't standing on the same side of the smoke pit. It's like you were, you were, you know, your clique was defined by what kind of music you loved. Yeah. I'm not sure that that still exists. No, you know, I think in, in with inclusion and with acceptance and equality, um, you know, check me if I'm wrong, but where I, I live in a smallish town, racism doesn't exist here. You know what I mean? Like it's, and this town, like small towns generally have that, that sniff of it, you know, just a whiff of race, you know what I mean? Race. But with, with schools and teaching, they're, they're just, this whole thing is being eradicated. Like it feels like to me, which I mean, this is great because music. There's no like you were saying division in the smoking area. There's no division on what, um, what you like, what I like. You like, you know what I mean. There's more of an acceptance mm-hmm. with it. And I'm not sure if that's something that's that our te- their teachers have taught them, or we mm-hmm. as parents have taught them. Maybe a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Maybe a bit of both. Right. Well, I hope so. I I would just hope there would be a natural evolution. Yeah. I mean, because it it took. You think about like the 40s. Well, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, not much changed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it just seemed to be the same type of like uh, ignorance to culture and acceptance. But it seems like once the 70s, 80s, 90s, and especially the 90s, um, things kind of started changing because the last thing I you know want to be is the negative part of the, your upbringing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if there's a negative part in your upbringing. You kind of want to, you don't want to put that into your kids. You know what I mean? You don't want to sort yeah. of, you don't want to instill, you don't want to carry the circle, the circle of the cycle around. So, you know, the, it can be damning too, because sometimes you can be like way too soft, you know, on, on children, you know, like where it's a conversation and everyone's having a conversation. It's like, I still think there's needs to be parenting. I still don't think they need to, you need to tell your kids like, this is, this is, this is, I'm, I'm saying this because I am your father. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not having right. a conversation. Like, how, how how is that with you and in, in, in your your kids? Do you do you still have that element of like, I'm your dad? Yeah, I mean, we're all learning as we go, yeah. and we only have the template of how we were raised. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was I, my brother and sister and I had absolute incredible family life growing up. We, we were, um, 
nurtured in the arts. Uh, we were nurtured in creativity. My father was a was a established um, painter, um, artist, and he. Uh, it was very important to him that all three of us were uh, creatively fulfilled. First and foremost, we were given unlimited tools to make art. There was always paper and art supplies and musical instruments and cameras and film cameras uh, lying around <laughs> for us to pick up and, and play with. And I, re I recognize that that's uh, freakish, um, particularly in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up. Less freakish now. You see the nurturing of, of um, creativity in children a lot more with our generation of parents. Um, I think when it comes to parenting, like I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to do the best I can to give my kids the tools to be happy. Because one thing we recognize as we, as we get firmly immersed in middle age is that, you know, you know, being content in your own skin is really what's most valuable. And yeah, as David Lee Roth so succinctly put, um, money doesn't buy happiness, that, but it does buy you a boat that you can pull up right next to it. <laughs> um, and so, yes, money doesn't buy happiness. I certainly know some very miserable, very rich people, and, and I know some pretty happy poor people as well. But money does buy you freedom. Um, it allows you to. Um, entertain your your um curiosity about the world with travel yeah which is really the great thing about living besides good quality restaurants the great thing about living in this little window of history that we live in is that we get to see the planet you know mm -hmm. um so give you know giving my kids the tools to be happy fulfilled adults i think is the number one goal keep the, keeping them alive as teenagers number one and number two yeah. giving them the tools to be to be uh happy adults, fulfilled adults. Yeah. I think my, my biggest victory in parenting was teaching my children the meanings of manners and eye contact, especially of mm -hmm. like being at a restaurant and someone's you're taking your order. And, you know, as a eight year old, my son would be like, I want this, that I'm like, no, no, no. Look up there. That person is make eye contact and say, please. And thank you. And when they said like, first thing, like, May I please have, I'm like, I almost cried. I was like, I was so like, my God, something, you know, because that is just a, such a, such a simple tool, manners, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's such a simple tool that gets you off on the right foot with anybody you meet the first time, you know what I mean? And you know, yeah. it's, it's awkward as being teenagers. I get that part. But there's like that moment of like, my, my son now is 18 and he's living at college in Ottawa, like five hours away from here. I'm sure he's doing great. You know what I mean? If it was me at 18, I'd be a fucking mess. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be a nightmare. Right. I'd be a nightmare. Right. Well, you've, you've done well then. Yeah. You know. but, I mean, yeah, to your point, it's like, I mean, as I alluded to earlier, like good people skills are, are your, are your road to success. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's not necessarily, you've got to have some skills. Yeah. But you don't have to be the best. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to be a good hang. Yeah. Yeah. A reasonable human. What's uh what's in the plans for you for the next uh, to the end of the year? 
5440 has some shows in Toronto in the first week of December where we've got one at the we've got a private at the Elmo and then three at the Horseshoe. What dates? Uh the Horseshoe shows are December 2, 3, 4, I believe. Uh that's Friday Saturday. Lowest and lower I think 15th, 16th. Yeah, I think they're the weekend after maybe or yeah. something like that. And then um 5440 is playing New Year's Eve at um Rogers Arena in Vancouver here. It's us, Mother Mother, and Brian Adams. And then our uh, traditionally 5440 does uh plays um Thanksgiving weekend every weekend at the every year at the Commodore. We play the Friday and Saturday. This year we were gonna play the Thursday, Friday, Saturday because of COVID, it got pushed back. So it's pushed back to uh January 6, 7, 8. So we got three nights at the Commodore in Vancouver. Um, we'll see. It's funny, you know, with COVID, 5440's played 11 shows since things started opening up in the, in the summer. Um, and every single one of them, you know, people say, like, you must be so excited to be still playing it. And I'm like, I, listen, I don't believe it until I'm on stage playing it or in the studio recording it. Or I look at my bank account and the check's there. And that's not my attitude because of COVID. That was my attitude before COVID too. <laughs> a lifetime in, in, in rock and roll means like, don't believe it until it's fucking actually happening. Yeah, it's true. Um, so COVID hasn't really changed that much as, as far as that, that goes for me. I still don't believe it until it's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, uh, I've got Neil coming over early next week from his uh, secret island lair where we are going to put the finishing touches on uh, 5440's um, quarantine album. We've made a very weird, interesting record during quarantine where when we were separated, we basically were sending files around to each other. And um, the record is entirely about the band. Every song's title is some sort of catchphrase from the band's vernacular and inside jokes. And it's all about literally about being in 5440 for 40 years. Hmm. And it's funny because when Neil presented the idea to me and sent me the first couple of songs, I went, this is so stupid. Nobody's going to like this. Mm -hmm. And then I got into like song six or seven. I'm like, this is so stupid. Everybody's going to love this. <laughs> yeah cool because because he really stuck to the plan like he just is it's so consistently on point um from the first word to the last so we're just in the we're just putting the final little sprinkles of pixie dust on there and then we'll be looking for a mixer and um early next year we'll release a, a new 5440 record amazing well we should talk about well first of all when you come to toronto let me know if you got time for coffee and uh, second of all, um, if you want to come back and talk about that when that happens, then we got another yeah, reason to chit chat. To. Absolutely. And yeah, um, yeah. well, I, I appreciate you doing it, man. Uh, thanks, thanks a lot. I uh, I feel like we just touched it. I feel we just touched the surface of. Uh, oh, I've got about fourteen hours of absolutely incredible Art Bergman stories. <laughs> Maybe we should have a, like have an art storytelling segment in the show, or it's just like. You per every week telling an Art Bergman story. I <laughs> I actually had that idea. Kevin, the guy who does lights for Sloan, 
He always has a crazy story. And I said, well, call and leave me a message and I'll put it on the podcast. Every time he never called me. So I'm like, I guess nothing crazy happened. But um, well, you have to remember art has an impeccable memory. Mm -hmm. So one thing that's fucking incredible about art is his memory is a steel trap. (laughs) So he might be better to tell the stories. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, he always amazed me with like, particularly people like names. Somebody would, he'd be slumped in the corner of the dressing room and somebody would walk in and go, Hey, Art, do you remember like in 1982, you were touring across with the subhumans and you came and you stayed at our house? And I'd be like, Oh, yeah, it was you and, and John and Jenny and your April and your Frank. It's like, he was, I would just be like, How do you do that? <laughs> I'm the exact opposite. I'm like, I no, I, I know I'm the same way. I'm horrible that way. He just had an, inc- he has an incredible knack, knack for, for uh, names and faces yeah. and um, m- remembering incidents. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I've got like the Art and Bergman years were just absolutely full of jaw dropping, <laughs> incredible. I can't believe this is happening stories has anybody contacted you about because apparently somebody's trying to do a documentary on him has anybody gotten in touch with you yet about it? i have not heard i have not heard there's a guy alex um, i think that did the, i think he did the ron sexsmith documentary i think it's the same guy who's trying oh, yeah. to get funding to do a, an art art doc so i uh, can't think of i i mean art would be an incredible subject incredible story yeah um and you know it's uh it it is an incredible art is an incredible story Um, and a notorious one for somebody who enjoyed so little financial success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was very interesting, you know, playing with art where he's, you know, he's a, he's a rock star on queen street and water street and crickets everywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the lot in life with someone who like that, who is like kind of a creator and an inventor. And sort of one who's in charge of their own zeitgeist or whatever, who's like, yeah, and 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 sort of like, yeah, and then the ones who try to kind of be like that and maybe fake it, kind of turn out to be the ones that make all the funds and the money out of it, you know? Yeah, the, the ones who do do the Vegas show word for word every single night with all the shtick and all the gimmicks and just change the name of the town. Yeah, make sure and it's then, written on the set list though, because I'll fuck it up. Like that's yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it, Dave. Um, let's um, let's keep in touch. I mean, let me know if you got some time in Toronto or whatever. And, you know, I think there is actually uh, Lois Low. Hold on, let's just say stop, and then we'll talk more. Thanks. Okay. Doing the show. Yeah. And that was Dave Ken. Thanks, Dave, for doing the show. It was fun. Uh, I I contacted Dave. Uh, we obviously talked about the Lois Low documentary I am working on, and he's going to be in it. He's part of it, and um, I have a trailer that's getting ready to drop in the next two weeks or so i have a few more things to do with it i have to add more stuff i have to always tweak it um some low low shows are coming up in december so that'll be kind of cool to uh try to start advertising the fact that there is a, a documentary out on this band and dave was part of it dave played on hallucigenia dave was a keyboard player played with our bergman oh my god I, I, mean, I forgot all these things like when i was doing the intro like yeah our bergman that's that's no, uh, you know, that's no schlep on the show. That's a real guy. So anyways, 
I was supposed to have Punk Rock Family on it, but I, I listened back to it and it sounded so horrible. Something was going wrong with the with the video, with the, with the audio. It sounded like dogs were fighting in the background. I mean, we just I just couldn't handle it. So maybe we'll try to figure out a way to clean that up and put it up. But it had Mark Belkey on it, too, so I guess. Yeah, maybe you should have watched it when it came out live a couple of weeks ago. What can I say? Everybody, have a great week. I... Hoped, well, I will have another one because I'm actually just about to do one in 15 minutes with the creators of the documentary film Blasting Room, which is about this uh, the recording studio that Bill Stevenson runs down in Fort Collins, uh, Colorado. And I'm, i got to finish this up so I can get this episode out so I can actually um, start talking to people about, like, you know, real documentary filmmakers. Maybe I'll learn some stuff. So anyways, have a great one. We'll see you again. Bye-bye.